A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on The Paragraph. Yes, the writing convention, The Paragraph, uh, as used in prose. In the last episode, uh, of course, if you haven't heard that yet, you should go check that out first. But in the last episode, we especially focused on the history of The Paragraph, talking about the old Greek and Latin manuscript style of scriptio continua, which is just a big old mess of letters with no case differences, no punctuation between sentences, and no spaces between words. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. (laughs) And how over time that morphed into a tradition that uh, put a greater emphasis on legibility, introducing things like spaces between words and punctuation, case differences, and so forth. Um, But eventually... Also having this tradition of transition markers such as the pilcro, which are, you know, that that's the paragraph symbol. You've probably seen it before, especially in medieval manuscripts often being a little red symbol. But then, of course, that over time just giving way to blank space, uh, giving rise to the paragraph breaks that we know today. Now, concerning the era of medieval manuscripts where you had these red pilcrows and they would be uh, filled in by special manuscript artists known as rubricators. Again, that's uh, actually from the the Latin word meaning red. So these are the red text people. Uh, um, there, There was a quote from a Middle English poem that I wanted to share because it struck me as so weird. Uh, This poem was cited in an essay that I'm going to refer to uh, in this episode, and I did in the last, called Past Lives of the Paragraph by Richard Hughes Gibson, published in the Hedgehog Review. Uh, But the the poem goes like this. Okay, so it's in Middle English. I'll, I'll try it. It's like, Route is on the book without. V. Perifs, great and stout, bullet in rose red. And what's going on here is that the the poet is using paraph symbols as a metaphor for the five wounds on the body of Christ. And in mm. modern English, this would, these lines would say something like wrought on the book without five paraphs, great and stout standing out in rose red. So there you go. That's your typography and crucifixion narrative coming together in, in one great glorious uh, stew. Uh, this uh, this is fascinating. I, I, when it comes to red text, I, I guess the main place one sees it now is is that many Bibles 
uh, Christian Bibles will contain um, passages that are the attributed words of Christ in red. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a holdover from these days. Another case that stands out uh, in my memory is uh, the book, The House of Leaves, in which mm. I believe the word uh, Minotaur uh, is, is, uh, is featured in red. And that book as a whole, I think, is interesting to think of in terms of something that I, I keep thinking of discussing the paragraph, and that is the, the format being part of the message, part of the communication. Um, that if you, if you strip away paragraph breaks, it disrupts the communication that is uh, that is taking place between uh, between author and reader, and and if you strip away other aspects of formatting, if you tinker with things like fonts in a in a negative fashion, uh, it can also have such an effect. And that is a book, for example, that if you were to uh, alter too much about the format at all, you end up decaying the the message and the intended uh, communication of the piece. This ties into something we talked about in the last episode, which is the somewhat arbitrary uh, designations of like which formatting decisions are considered integral to the text and which are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the big example would be ebooks and the way that they break text across different pages. So you change the font size on your ebook, the you know different text will appear together with different page groupings. Uh, and of course, this was true before ebooks. I mean, different printings of the same text in book form would usually not have the exact same words each page. So uh, page layout is not considered integral usually in a printed book, though, of course, it would be in a book like House of Leaves, where it's very much a work of art as well as a book. Uh, And yet paragraph breaks are considered an integral part of the text. And if you change those around, people, I think, would mostly have the sense that you are really altering the author's work there, even though some teachers do it. And uh, apparently it has good effects, especially when teaching a piece of writing that has really long paragraphs. I totally forgot to mention a book that I'm uh, I'm currently reading that I'm that I have that are that has errors in it. I'm reading an old ebook that I have of Frank Herbert's Heretics of Dune, mm. and uh, I, I hadn't I hadn't picked up this ebook in a very long time, and the formatting was weird in it, uh, not consistently, not enough to where I was like, should I just buy a new ebook of this or should I press on? But occasionally, uh, paragraph breaks would be missing. And it would often occur with dialogue. So um, if I'm just reading along, I might miss that one character has stopped talking and another character has started talking or that there's been some shift in a thought. And it is it, it was disruptive uh, to reach those points. And I would have to stop and go back and sort of pick apart with my, my eyes uh, where the actual paragraph break should have occurred. And then I would momentarily think about buying a new ebook, and then I would keep going instead. Wait, I'm perplexed by the idea of an ebook with fixed errors in it. Okay, so you buy a video game and it's got mm-hmm. bugs. The developers should eventually release a patch, like an update that will download, it'll it'll fix your game and now it won't have the bugs anymore. But you download an ebook and it's got bugs in it and what, they don't do that? No, well, nowadays they can. Nowadays ebooks can you you can essentially have a patch that goes out uh, through like Amazon and whatnot. So mm. I don't know, I guess this is just a super old ebook that I have of this particular uh, text. So um, yeah, I should have I, I should have <laughs> broken and bought a, a new ebook of it. I actually have a physical copy of it as well, and I toyed with just with switching over to the physical copy, but uh, I can't control the size of the text on that. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of uh, spoiled by my Kindle. So this old one, you're like uh, it would be like waiting on the developers to release a patch for the ET game for the Atari. Yeah, well, like this is clearly not the supported copy anymore. So. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe I have something wrong in my settings. I'm not sure. Okay, well, one thing uh, that I guess ties more into the history that we were talking about in the last episode uh, is the question of when did the idea of a para for a paragraph come to symbolize more the chunk of text itself between the breaks rather than the breaks? Uh, because, you know, the, the originally the idea is that the marker known as the paragraphos in, in Greek manuscripts was like a marginal notation that signaled some kind of transition within the text. It was, it was written out beside. Uh, and then over time, this morphs through many stages to become line breaks and indentation. Uh, so when did we start talking about paragraphs as the text between those breaks? 
Well, in that article I mentioned by Richard Hughes Gibson, uh, Gibson points to examples in texts in uh, in French and English around the 13th or 14th century that seem to start making reference to paragraphs as subsections of text, saying things like, you know, you can skip this paragraph, or talking about a text mm-hmm. and saying, you know, refer to this paragraph. But it seems to be roughly around the late 17th or early 18th century that the more modern definition of a paragraph as the passage of text between the line breaks and indentation emerges as dominant. Uh, And uh, Gibson points to a 1706 new edition of the New World of English Words, which defines a paragraph as, quote, a portion of matter of discourse or treatise contained between two breaks, i.e., which begins with a new line and ends where the line breaks off. So by around that time, you got people talking about paragraphs, and they are the paragraphs that we have today. It's a chunk of text between line breaks. But... This leads to another question, which is the question of paragraph theory. What actually makes a paragraph? Uh, Surely people who study language and writing must have come up with ideas of, okay, you know, you go out and look at paragraphs in books. What are the things that paragraphs have in common? How do authors decide where to break the line? And this question is not nearly as easy to answer as you might assume. Especially because, uh, you know, this is not the only thing like this in the world, but it's one case where there's sort of a formal definition that you will find taught in school Mm -hmm. and that you will find in a lot of textbooks that does not at all seem to describe what happens just out in the world. Uh, and, And the difference here is that you've got all kinds of prescriptive definitions of the paragraph, often saying that a paragraph sort of explores a central idea or a topic. And we'll get to one major proponent of this idea uh, in just a bit. Uh, But one person that Gibson points to in his essay is a poet and art critic named Herbert Reed, uh, who wrote a 1928 book on English prose style. And Gibson writes about Reed, quote, Taking up his nearly century-old book, one recognizes a peculiar tradition in which one textbook after another, one generation after another, has promoted a blueprint for paragraph construction conspicuously at odds with the prose of the most highly acclaimed stylists of the English language. So, in other words, there's a conflict between how paragraphs are theorized in textbooks and and taught in schools and how they're actually used by writers, especially the most popular writers in a culture. Good writers do not usually write Comp 101-style essays with clear topic sentences and one central idea per paragraph. How often do you come across that in a book you actually like to read? <laughs> yeah, uh, not often. And, you know, in fact, I was, uh, for the last episode and for this episode, I did a lot of looking around thinking, well, I should be able to find some perfect paragraphs out there in books that I that I love and, and books that I admire. And it's 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 really hard because if you go into it thinking about paragraphs and perhaps having at least this shadow of the um, of this school book uh, this textbook paragraph in your mind, you find all sorts of things that don't really fit that form. Absolutely. So you look at your favorite books, you are probably just not going to find many paragraphs that have a topic sentence and then supporting sentences developing that topic idea and then a line break when you're done with that topic moving on to the next thing. There are some reasons we can talk about where I think it might make sense for composition classes to teach it that way. But yeah, this is just not usually what you're going to find out in the wild in in the books you like. And so we're back to the question again, like what actually causes those paragraph breaks to happen where they do? They're not random. If you were to just rearrange them at random, it would probably produce a less good and less cohesive text. And yet it's very hard to actually come up with rules to explain why they come in the places they do. I'll also say that I think that a very effective but standard, you know, sort of textbook paragraph is kind of like a a brick in a cathedral. Um, Mm -hmm. The bricks are important, and there may be a lot of bricks in there holding things together, but they're not the part you remember. You remember the flying buttresses. You remember the gargoyles and the the stained glass (laughs) windows and uh, and, and things of that nature. And so the parts of a text, and in fact, the paragraphs of a text that probably stand out the most to us are the ones that are weird, that are, you know, big run-on sentences or short little fragments that have a lot of weird things going on in them. Like, those are, those are the things that catch our eye. Those are the ones we remember. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, and I think even by looking at some of the more prescriptive paragraph theorists, even if their prescriptive definitions of paragraphs don't really describe what you see in the world, um, they do make some observations that are useful. And one thing that stuck with me here is that uh, in, in Gibson's article, he, he cites an American lawyer and grammarian named Lindley Murray, who in 1795 wrote a book on English grammar called English Grammar, which makes some recommendations on how a composition should be divided into paragraphs. And Lindley writes uh, that ideally a paragraph is about a single subject. Each subject should get its own paragraph unless subjects are very short. Uh, subjects that are very long should be divided into multiple paragraphs. We're getting into some some vagueness about exactly <laughs> yeah. what is very short or very long here. And uh, who knows? People in 1795 might have had more tolerance for very long paragraphs. I'm not, not, not sure about that, but that seems possible based on the texts I've surveyed. Mm-hmm. But one thing Lindley Murray says that I do think is still true uh, is that you should often try to place the paragraph breaks, quote, at sentiments of the most weight or that call for particular attention. So when you have to divide subjects across multiple paragraphs, you are looking for places to to place the paragraph breaks that will call attention to the sentences directly before or after. Uh, and so it's interesting that Murray senses what, what Gibson in his essay describes as these, quote, hot spots, places in the text typically occurring near paragraph breaks where the power of the words increases or is emphasized. Paragraph breaks tend to draw attention to the words right before and after them. This is a great idea, of course, because as a, as a writer, you want the reader to keep reading. And, uh, and it, it, this, this kind of works like, a, like an arrow pointing from one chunk of text to the next, almost like uh, connecting one tile in a board game to the following tile. You know where to go and you want to go there. Yes, and I think at this time it's also already recognized that uh, paragraph length plays an important role not just in organizing the contents uh, of a piece of writing, but also in sort of managing the energy and attention of the reader. Because again, if paragraphs are too short, the text starts to feel frivolous or insubstantial. And if paragraphs are too long, the text starts to feel tedious and overtaxing. And so balancing paragraph length serves the function of not losing the reader. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But okay, it's time to talk about Alexander Bain, uh, because when you get into paragraph theory, this is a name that is cited in essentially every piece of writing on this subject. Alexander Bain is the king of paragraph theory. So he was uh, he was a professor in the 19th century in Scotland. He was the uh, he was the chair of logic and the chair of English literature at the University of Aberdeen. I think he was given those posts in 1861. And uh, he, he, was, he, had a, he was one of those people at the time who just had like a poker and a number of different fires. So I think he was also influential in the early development of psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but also logic and also English literature. <laughs> so um, he became a teacher of composition at Aberdeen and ended up writing his own textbook for his classes that was called English Composition and Rhetoric, a Manual. This was published in the 1860s. It contained what a scholar called Paul Rogers called the first systematic formulation of paragraph theory. And if you, you ever took a Comp 101 class, you will probably recognize Bain's idea. Bain's primary concern with paragraphs was unity, that each paragraph should have what's called unity of purpose. It's doing one main thing. And he had like six rules about paragraphs. They are things like, first rule, the bearing of each sentence upon what proceeds shall be explicit and unmistakable. Two, when several consecutive sentences iterate or illustrate the same idea, they should, so far as possible, be formed alike. And then three, here's the big one. The opening sentence, unless so constructed as to be obviously preparatory, is expected to indicate with prominence the subject of the paragraph. And here it is. This is your topic sentence. Rule number Mm. three. So for Alexander Bain, each paragraph in a composition should exhaust a single subject and the paragraph should begin with a succinct statement of that subject, which is then to be developed in the following sentences. Don't you just thrill with the love of the English language? 
Uh, but Bain's ideas did prove very influential, and uh, according to Gibson, at least, one half of the modern discourse on paragraph theory still basically derives from Bain. Uh, Gibson writes, citing a, a, another rhetorician named Mike Duncan, that there are two major schools of thought in paragraph theory. You've got prescriptivists and descriptivists. Paragraph prescriptivists usually say something like, the paragraph is an ideal structure with an ideal form. It's based on unity of purpose, like Bain said. It should be about one thing, and it should cover that one thing. And then, uh, and that form, that ideal form, can be emulated by students to practice their writing. Meanwhile, paragraph descriptivists would have uh, what Gibson calls, quote, a looser inductive approach to instruction with Bain style rules limited to suggesting a structural ideal that is only rarely seen. And thinking about it, I can see how there are advantages to teaching writing with with each of these approaches. Uh, So the descriptive school, to my mind, saying, yeah, paragraphs don't usually work that way is more honest. It is more honest about how paragraphs are actually formed in popular writing, but it's also a lot harder to teach. I mean, if the truth is that a paragraph can be anything you want it to be as long as it works, as long as it makes sense and feels good to the reader, that is a true statement, but a student probably doesn't know how to create a paragraph that works unless they're just naturally talented. So this is just not very helpful advice. So in comes the prescriptive model. It doesn't usually describe most of the paragraphs you'll find in books you like and, and, and articles you like, but it is actually something that can be taught and has a utility in creating a structure that students can use to organize their thoughts and make them clear. So it is better than nothing. It is better than not being able to write anything coherent at all. But then again, if you learn composition on the basis of the prescriptivist thought, and you're, you're writing Alexander Bain-style uh, paragraphs with topic sentences, the classic five-paragraph essay for, for a school class, I wonder, does that constrict the development of your writing skill in the domain of, of organic paragraphs? Yeah, I don't know. It, it certainly makes me think of, of the old standard that you need to learn the rules before you break the rules. Yeah. That uh, you need a. It, it's better to to start with this rule based system and then move out from that. Uh, so you, you'll have you know somewhere to go and somewhere to sort of look back to. Um, so I I can see the I, I certainly see the appeal of 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 valuing both approaches to the paragraph. Yeah, I think I can agree with that, and uh, I, I guess I was sort of already getting at this, but to make it more clear, I wonder if this is just one of those things that is. A, a product of necessity stemming from the realities of teaching. Like mm-hmm. there's no systematic way to teach a student to be a great prose stylist, to just, you know, to write great organic paragraphs that people love to read. Like, what would you tell them to do? Is like, no, use this word here. And you know, <laughs> like, you probably just can't really teach that unless you're going to stick with them their entire life and just uh, be, be really intensive. But you probably can in the course of a semester help teach a student to better organize their thoughts more clearly with a structure like the five paragraph essay that has paragraphs with topic sentences that are each about a single subject. So I think taking a student from incoherent in writing to reasonably clear five paragraph essay with Bain style conventions, that's doable. Uh, Teaching someone to write wonderful organic paragraphs is, is much more challenging. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> this is something that's going to be a no-brainer to any teachers out there, and certainly to any uh, parents of children who are still learning how to write. Uh, I mean, I've uh, my, my son's doing pretty well, but um, but I mean, I've seen some real dogs of paragraphs uh, when it comes <laughs> to uh, uh, to putting things together. Because you know, he, he I have to remind myself. I've had to remind myself in, the, in these times. It's like, yeah, he he may he he reads a lot, and he's he gets to see a lot of, uh, of well-constructed paragraphs and paragraphs that are definitely doing their job within narrative works and so forth. But it, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to have like some sort of basic form in mind, especially when you're doing these very, um, you know, rote sort of assignments where it's all about constructing, uh, constructing the sentences, forming those sentences into paragraphs and having, you know, X number of paragraphs to illustrate a basic concept. Yes, and in the defense of the five-paragraph essay and, and the Alexander Bain-style paragraph, uh, I, I would say that's useful for more than just producing a piece of writing somebody would actually want to read. 
it is useful for practicing organizing your own thoughts. I, I know I've said on the podcast before that I often feel like I don't really understand what I think about an issue often until I try to write about it. Writing mm-hmm. is the process by which I realize which of my intuitions I do think are true and make sense and which ones are not. And I I should just abandon it's a writing for me is very much a process of figuring out what I really think and organizing those thoughts into a a structure that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I certainly agree with that. Um, I oftentimes, oftentimes find myself in a situation where I have to write about a topic my thoughts on the topic or just the general uh, knowledge about that topic is kind of all over the place, but you got to start somewhere. And, uh, and so the, just that first sentence, that first paragraph, that opening paragraph of a, of a work, even if it's not the, the lead paragraph you end up sticking with, like that is often for me, like that's kind of like staking a, a place in the ground. That's like where you begin to, to actually uh, you know, trace out where you're going to build the rest of the thing. Yeah. You remember uh, a long time ago, we did an episode that I think back on fairly often about the illusion of explanatory depth, the, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the uh, psychology concept where you can think you understand how something works, but you actually don't until you are forced to try to explain it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Easy example for this is, uh, do you know how to draw a bicycle? with all the parts and oh, yeah, everybody yeah. thinks they do, but you actually try to draw one and like, I don't know what the percentage of people is, but a huge percentage of people actually, they draw a bicycle that could not work. Like they don't actually know what parts connect to what and, and everything. Um, and the same is true for like a toilet tank or other things that we just think we understand how they work until we have to get explicit and into the details about it. And writing can be a, an exercise like that, like trying to draw the bicycle. It helps you realize what you thought you understood or knew, but you don't, you don't actually. So now you've got to go back and figure things out. Right. Now, I was thinking about another difference between the, you know, the, the lovely organic paragraph that sort of moves on its own terms and, and you can't really say what exactly the rules for its structure are versus the Alexander Bain style prescriptive topic sentence paragraph. And I think one difference is simply that these are achieving different goals. One is style and the other is clarity. And if if like a fiction book were full of Bain style paragraphs, I think that would obviously become very tedious and unpleasant to read. So, of course, there's the idea that good prose stylists don't usually follow this format. And yet I can think of documents where I would much rather have the document read in an Alexander Bain style instead of having, you know, uh, sort of more loosey goosey organic paragraphs and examples would be things like an article in a science journal or Mm -hmm. a medical article or a legal document or a list of instructions for building something basically anywhere that clarity and logical organization are more important than, uh, style and, and energy and pleasure of reading, I think the the Bain style uh, structure is a good approach. Yeah, yeah, this is a, an interesting point, and it made me think of of how I use a lot of text for work and for research, uh, because I think an interesting aspect of the text to think about here is skimmability uh, mm-hmm. for texts that are not expressly for pleasure. Uh, you know, certainly if it's something um, I'm using for research purposes, uh, some in some cases I, I read the entire book, uh, you know, cover to cover. Other times I'm in there to get s- specific things from that author. I know there are specific topics, or it's a specific part of a study that I'm interested in. And for that, yeah, paragraphs or uh, breaks and paragraph structure are pretty important because I need to be able to move around in that text. I'm not I'm not going to eat it all. I need to be able to pick out the things I want. And so it helps if those uh, morsels are separated from each other on the platter. I think they're also the, these are the kind of documents that in many cases would benefit from being removed from the uh, flowing prose style altogether and just become lists of bullet points. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you see this with instructions, right? Uh, assembly yeah. guidelines and whatnot. They're generally not going to be uh, arranged in, um, in multi-paragraph form. It's going to be bullet points and numbers and also illustrations and so forth. But you do find this with recipes, I guess, but even then you'll have numbers or bullet points in there as well. Mm-hmm. So that you can easily skip from this paragraph to this paragraph. So it's, uh, you're very clear on which step am I on. Totally. I mean, I love organic flowing prose, but I don't want it in a recipe. But you will get it in your recipe 
on <laughs> every recipe blog out there. And I think you, you often hear people gripe about this. And I think it's because of that, that collision of two things. You'll often yeah. have a, an organic, uh, organic paragraphs forming this, um, this conversational blog post about a particular recipe, about a particular drink or, or food culture, whatever it happens to be. But then this article also contains the recipe, a thing that uh, that, you, that is very much uh, uh, you know a situation where you want to go in, get what you need, jump in at the right step, and get out again. And if you're hit with both styles, I mean that can be a little bit jarring. Yeah, especially if it's not. So I I was going to qualify what I said with like, oh okay, I can understand you know sort of a thing that's two parts. It's like the recipe as a list of instruct clear instructions with bullet points, and then above that like an article that explains in more detail. But uh, it, it does get frustrating, like if it's not clear at first glance whether you need to read the article or not in order to make the recipe. You're like, am I going to be missing something if I don't read all this text? Right, and and one of the problems I think with with blog posts is it, it comes down to formatting. Because if you have a really good book, uh, like I have a few different books on on cocktails, uh, and and those are often nice because they're very well formatted, and you can easily see where is the cocktail recipe and where mm-hmm. where is the you know the article, where is the prose about this cocktail or the history of the cocktail, etc. Uh, but if you're dealing with a blog format. I mean, there's some great blog templates out there, but you don't always have that much freedom and you're often left doing something that is a little more like blog post at the top recipe at the bottom or worse, I guess, is something where there is no distinction, where uh, the, uh, the the recipe is just immersed within the uh, the more prose-based blog post. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure 
it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in thinking about... uh, paragraphs and and organization of pieces of writing i i was uh looking at uh, an interesting article called the music of form rethinking organization in writing by peter elbow which was published in college composition and communication in 2006 and um the main thing i wanted to mention from this uh, most of this essay is about uh elbow talking about possibly thinking of writing as analogous to music uh, and having music style organizational techniques. Uh, but, but I want to start with this metaphor. So Elbow describes a painting. Uh, he, he uses the example of Edward Hopper's Nighthawks and says, you know, okay, we're, we're humans. We're able to stand several feet back from this painting and see it as a whole, right? You can just look at it you can see the whole thing and you can understand it as a composition of different parts that it, that emerges from how they all come together at once. Hmm. But then he says, okay, now take the same painting and imagine instead that you are an ant. And you can only look at the painting a little bit at a time by crawling over the surface of it. And thus your idea of the whole painting has to come together a little bit at a time and involves your use of memory of what parts you previously looked at and probably also some imagination of what parts you haven't looked at yet. And then Elbow writes, quote, When we read a text, we are like the ant. The text is laid out in space across multiple pages, but we can only read one small part at a time. We may jump around the text, grasshopper-like, especially with long texts, looking at chapter titles and other headings, browsing the openings and closings of chapters, looking for, quote, perspective. Some texts lead off with an abstract, as this journal now asks. Books have tables of contents, but still we can take in relatively few words at a time. So here's my question. If texts are spatial phenomena, and yet our experience of them is necessarily temporal, how can we best organize texts for readers? How could we organize paintings for ants? This is is great. I love this way of thinking about it. The ant crawling over the painting, trying to form this idea of what the painting looks like. And I think that gets down to one of the problems of thinking, oh, I'm going to find that great paragraph in that book I love. Because Mm -hmm. no paragraph for the most part there may be some exceptions and and maybe i can think of one or two but they're so rare for the most part the paragraph any given paragraph is not a miniaturization of the larger work and cannot properly uh, convey the idea of the larger work right i thought this metaphor was so interesting because it's true and that like a lot of the the stuff people do, you know, like conventions of writing, like the Alexander Bain style paragraph or the five paragraph essay in a composition class, are designed to give you a structure that would help an ant understand what the whole painting is, even after 
even while they're only, you know, crawling over a bit of it at a time. Because it's so familiar, you know what the structure is, you know where you are within it at any given time, you know roughly what the whole thing's going to look like. And that that type of mapping or signposting does provide some some perspective to, you know, the ant crawling over the painting or the human being reading a text. And yet they come with disadvantages and, and Elbow identifies a number of them. But one he talks about is um, the idea of energy, like that uh, a, a text with good organic paragraphs that are not organized in such a, you know, mapped out and signposted way they tend to have more uh, more power to pull you along and make you want to keep reading and feel more like music, have those kind of interesting little melodies and themes that recur. Uh, he, he calls this other style, you know, the non-signposted style, dynamic organization. Mm. And one interesting uh, comparison that he makes is that he says dynamic organization can have not just style advantages. It's not just, you know, more interesting and pleasant to read kind of organic paragraphs that, uh, that, that are not so signposted. It can have a revelatory power of its own. It can actually show you things that a well mapped signposted paragraph or essay cannot. And the example he uses is um, is a comparison to Platonic dialogues. Uh, th- this comes from an author named Burke writing about Plato's dialogue, the uh, the Phaedrus. And Burke writes the following quote: "For a Platonic dialogue is not formed simply by breaking an idea into its component parts and taking them up in a one, two, three order." the purely scholastic aspect in Aristotle's method of exposition. A Platonic dialogue is rather a process of transformation whereby the position at the end transcends the position at the start so that the position at the start can eventually be seen in terms of the new motivation encountered on route. And I think that that's a great point of comparison because a lot of good writing has the quality of following the author's thoughts. So we're, we're not just seeing like a, uh, a presentation of, of uh, pre-approved informational tidbits, you know, arranged into paragraph form, but we are actually discovered the, the author is showing us something about how they come to an idea. They get from here to there. They're taking us along the way with them. And that can be just as enlightening as a clearly organized list of conclusions. Yeah, and and of course the, the the style is going to inform so much of how you understand the 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 inner workings of an author's mind and how you connect with it. Like, for, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Borges is going to have a totally different feel uh, for his paragraphs compared to Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, one uh, with Thompson's paragraphs, there's more of this sort of crackling live wire intensity to them, directing one thought to the next. Whereas Borges is gonna is gonna take his time, and he's it's more like a um, like like a like a vapor drifting through a wing of a library, uh, and, uh, and and so they're they're totally different experiences, and they're giving you a snapshot into uh, the way connections are forming in the authors' minds. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I, I've mainly now been thinking about nonfiction writing, but when you get into fiction, yeah, that's a totally different ball game, also. Mm-hmm. But anyway, a lot of this essay uh, seems to play on this metaphor of music and how you could think about. Uh, writing as as analogous to music in various ways, and how that also helps you think about compromises between the the highly organized signposted structure of like the five paragraph essay versus the dynamic organization of the organic paragraph, uh, and how you can you can blend them together to 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 have maximum effect. Yeah, there's this great um, bit from from Elbow on a read here. Quote, whole texts need larger global pieces of energy. It's not enough if paragraphs or sections hold together and pull us through from one to another. We also need a sense of the whole as whole, uh, a matter that Williams treats, but very briefly. This energy comes from the same forces that hold music together, sequences of expectation and eventual satisfaction, larger melodic or harmonic rhythms or examples of what I am calling the music of form. So yeah, this this interests me because uh, yeah, the author here mentions the use of story thinking at times, and this brought to mind 
the formulaic nature of most storytelling and fiction weaving endeavors. You know, certain structures are going to be followed, certain tropes are going to be invoked, and this does present a kind of form that pulls us along. Uh, like for instance, many of the movies we discuss on Weird House Cinema follow very expected structures and invoke expected elements. And while this certainly can make a movie viewing experience feel too formulaic in some cases, it can also provide the necessary pull. The genre trappings can often serve as a kind of uh, airport conveyor belt that makes it easier mm -hmm. to move through the work. Uh, you put up with the humdrum human interactions because you know that genre it demands that some of these humans are about to be eaten by a monster or knifed in the back by a slasher or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and that may be the aspect you're far more interested in. Also... <laughs> playing into the, uh, the the idea of expectation in music. I mean, this brings me back to some of our, our past discussions of music, that it's not only about expectations being met, but expectations being subverted. So you mm -hmm. think that the, the next note is going to do this, but then it does that, and that's what makes it fabulous. And that, too, is one of the great things in, in film, but also in writing. Like, it's the, 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 the beat that you think is coming, the rhyme that you think is coming, or whatever the case may be, it ends up being something else instead. And if you, if you tease it apart and tear it apart that that may seem more mundane but the, in the actual experience of the thing it can be it can just give you chills yeah and i, I think uh that that is one way in which reading and, and music are very similar i mean elbow's correct that you know you can only sort of experience them in a linear way like one moment at a time you can't hear a whole piece of music at once or read a whole piece of writing at once and so it's that process of having to go through one bit at a time in a linear way that makes these prediction subversion patterns so important. It's something about creating a great piece of music or a great piece of writing has to do with finding the right balance of uh, meeting expectations and then subverting expectations. Like just to just to come back to to like to, to to be movies for a second. Like sometimes the subversion it, that works is accidental. Like sometimes it's the fact that the monster jumps out and doesn't look right, and <laughs> that looks like the effect doesn't work. Like that is not the subversion that the the uh, the filmmakers were going for. Uh, if, if left to their own devices and being if they were able to achieve everything they wanted to achieve, it may have not the finished work may not have been that different from the works that inspired it. But sometimes just uh, um, an, an error in style or, or a weirdness of effect can subvert expectations in a way that makes it memorable. Like Jason takes Manhattan when um, <laughs> when the mask finally comes off and he looks a little little weird, a little, a little muppety. Cute. Yeah, like yeah. that. That's memorable because that's not really what you were expecting based on uh -huh. previous experiences with the form, with the with the Jason movie, and what an unmasking has previously been. I don't think they made him cute on purpose. I think that was a that was a felicitous accident. Yeah. Hey Rob, did you tell me before we started recording that you found a book with no paragraph breaks in it? Yes, yes. Uh, this morning, in fact, I was you know, I was looking around on my bookshelf and I was I was asking myself, okay, which of these has some great paragraphs? And there's got to be another great paragraph, another great intro paragraph. And and I did find a, a, a nice intro paragraph in another um, Alan Roquelet book. But I also realized, oh, I do own a book that has, I think, no paragraph breaks in the text itself. And it achieves this uh, through, it's kind of cheating, I guess, but it is a book you might be familiar with, Joe. It's titled 104 Stories by Thomas Bernard, uh, The Voice Imitator. No, I don't know this. So uh, Thomas Bernard in this book is writing short shorts. These are very short stories. Uh, mm. They are all, as far as I can tell, and remember, one paragraph long. The paragraphs mm. range in size. Some of them are rather lengthy paragraphs. Some of them are very short. But in every case, I believe, the paragraph is the complete story. Therefore, there are not really paragraph breaks within each work. Uh, now, there are certainly paragraph breaks between works, uh, but each story itself has no paragraph breaks. Okay, so you could look at this as a work uh, with with no paragraph breaks or work with extreme paragraph breaks where every break is the end of the text. 
I guess, yeah. Like, just to give an example, this is certainly a, a book worth picking up if anyone out there is interested in short shorts as a form, uh, which I do find quite fascinating. Because at times, I, I, especially when I'm getting into Borges, I keep thinking, well, it's the shorter works that are really the ones that resonate with me the most, you know? Some sort of, like, Philip K. Dick story that just is about a little idea. And so this is kind of the extreme form of it. But, for example, there's a, there is a story in here titled Hotel Waldhaus, and... This is the complete uh, story, one paragraph. We had no luck with the weather, and the guests at our table were repellent in every respect. They even spoiled Nietzsche for us. Even after they had had a fatal car accident and had been laid out in the church in Sills, we still hated them. <laughs> complete story, one paragraph. Oh, that reminds it, So there's another author I've been reading recently who I love who also has some very short, short stories uh, named Lydia Davis. Do you know Lydia Davis? I don't think I know that one, no. Oh, she writes a lot of like really great, uh, excruciatingly observed relationship stories mm-hmm. um, that are just full of like horrible, groan-inducing details <laughs> and dynamics. But they're, they're wonderful. She's a great writer, and she has a lot of single-paragraph stories that are really good. Nice. So, yeah, I guess it, it comes down to yeah, depending on how you shake it, and depending on how you discuss paragraphs, there are works out there that have no paragraph breaks, but. Um, but yeah, the, the extreme interpretation of that would just be works, I guess, that are just big vomit uh, of, of just a big bolus of, 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 wor- of words and symbols, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it just, you, 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 when you lose the form, you, lo- you lose the, the message. Like the format is part of the communication. It's just something I, I keep coming back to in thinking about this topic. Okay, so if somebody was teaching something you wrote in a classroom, you would not you would not want them to go in and insert paragraph breaks where you did not have them. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I would guess throw them in if you need to. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, well, I, I I see what you're saying. Then it is part of the message, but you're not going to be so precious that you couldn't add a few extra. <laughs> right. Well, I think part of this this exploration in paragraphs has made me question the the use of paragraph breaks in other works, especially older works. Like mm-hmm. I, I really kind of took it for granted, you know, some, some paragraphs are long, some are short. Uh, I didn't really think that about the, the idea of even breaking them up. And now I'm looking back and I'm thinking, well, you know, Borges is going a little long in this opening paragraph to this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and indeed he does go pretty, his paragraphs tend to be kind of chonky, uh, especially some of the, the opening paragraphs. But um, I'm not saying I would break up his text. It's not my place. But I guess if someone came around and broke some of my text up, I would be like, okay, yeah, it's, it, it's probably better. You probably, probably improved it. Hey, so we got to end with a call to the listeners here because there was something we were curious about that we couldn't really find good answers to, um, which is, are there languages where paragraph organization is significantly different than it is like in English that we're familiar with, uh, bilingual listeners who read and write in, in other non-English languages, uh, any, any, any interesting differences in how paragraphs are used in those languages or, or is there a language without paragraphs at all that you can tell us about? Yeah. I wasn't able to find any good answers on this myself looking around. There weren't, there weren't many discussions about it. Certainly I didn't see it addressed in many, in any papers. So yeah, I would love to hear from anyone out there who can, can speak to this. It seems like, it seems like the answer is yes, there are things like paragraphs or paragraphs in, 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 in other languages. And I didn't see anything about there being particular uh, language traditions today where there are no paragraphs, but maybe there are. Maybe I missed something. So definitely write in and let us know. Tell us. And certainly uh, the call remains open. Uh, paragraphs that you love in particular works, especially, again, I'm fascinated by opening paragraphs. Uh, and, and part of that is like thinking like newspapery about things, that this is the hook. This is the thing that you are presenting the reader with to get them to keep going. So what is the, what is the opening dish? What is the appetizer that will uh, make us remain seated for the remainder of the meal? Uh, if you have great examples of that, write in, let us know. Or perhaps there are some other works out there you can think of uh, in which there are no paragraph breaks. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core episodes come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, short form artifact or monster fact episodes come out on Wednesdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us, with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest 
topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.